Hello, Mark Stedman here, Chair of Beware of the Leopard. Now, before we begin, I just want to uh, alert your attention to something very important. We have been entered into the Discover Pods March Madness draw, which is basically like a World Cup of podcasts. We're in round one and we are up against We Have Concerns. So if you would like to see us enter into round two, and we would very much like that, uh, then you can go to bit.ly slash vote for the leopard, fill in the form, cast your vote. Uh, And there's lots of other podcasts in different categories you can vote for, but do please vote for Beware of the Leopard, uh, which is, as I said, up against We Have Concerns. We would very much appreciate your vote. You can only vote once per email address, I believe, so... Vote once, vote often, vote early, vote as many times as you can using as many different legitimate email addresses as you can. Let's game the system, but let's do it in a way that is fair and above board. (laughs) Um, Bit.ly slash vote for the leopard, and it is also linked up in the show notes. And now, on with the show. My mum used to worry that I was on the spectrum, but um, once I'd finished Jet Set Willy, I'd stopped. This young lady creeps in and seduces me under the, her kitchen table. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the Leopard. leopard, leopard Welcome leopard, to Beware leopard. of the Leopard, your E to Z of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm Mark Stedman, and this is my audition for the voice of the guide. I'm Danny Smith, sitting here like a lemon looking for Jim. And I'm Joe Bounds. I hoped and prayed that it wasn't an afterlife. Then I realised that there was a contradiction involved there and merely hoped that there wasn't an afterlife. I would feel very, very embarrassed meeting everybody. Um, so, uh, last week, we... Sound like one of them computer-generated people? Well, it's funny you should say that, Daniel, because last week, uh, on, on last week's episode, we were um, petitioning for who is going to play the guide in our Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. And John Bounds over there hit on the lovely idea that we should get a celebrity, a very sort of high profile, highly paid celebrity, and we should get them to record all the syllables and all the things that you need to do and then digitize their voice. And uh, there is a service that allows you to do that called Liarbird. And I decided as my homework that I would do that and put in my audition for the guide. Oh, nice it's amazing yeah so yeah. now um i can i can you know basically put anything into this text box and get back some text and we can do the show with we can do the show without you mark yes you can i <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's far too well until it comes to the point of actually like editing it or coming up with the questions <laughs> or putting it online or uh <laughs> Care, care, caring enough to um, wrangle uh, uh, for three. How many of us there are <laughs> middle-aged white men with various stages of beards into their back bedrooms on a Wednesday night? Yeah, uh, anything that involves work, essentially. <laughs> uh, well, we've started on the H's, and today we begin with a pile of dust. Actor is the first computer ever to be shocked. The Celastic Amorphians of Stritorax disintegrated it into dust but it still functioned slowly. In the radio series, he was played by Leslie Phillips. Danny, have you ever done anything you think might shock a computer? <laughs> I think he read it better than I did, to be honest. I mean, he, he had trouble with the Salastikama fiends of Stritorax, but usually I have words, I, usually I have problems with words like dust. So I think it did quite well. Yeah, no. Um, have I ever done anything that shocked a computer? I don't know about a computer, but if that guy from GHQ, you know, the one, the one that's looking <laughs> the through my webcam... 
Yeah, if if he's looking through my webcam, like he, I, I owe him some money for counselling. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that way about the uh, the the people who operate those body scan machines at airports. Just like I'm sorry, lads. I'm sorry. I did apologise to the guy at uh, Shoulder Gall actually <laughs> when I went through one first afterwards. I said, sorry, boss. And uh, <laughs> you just went. Do you, know, do you know the people that invented them and market them won't go through them? It's not that they're just really fat and ashamed of it. No, they <laughs> they won't go through them. They think they're dangerous. <laughs> Amazing. Late stage capitalism, late stage capitalism. We're all going to die. <laughs> that actually damn ties into I what we I need. I thought we needed a jingle. No, I appreciated it. That is uh, actually what I was... Because you can do, of course, the observation of comedy room going, huh, what shocks the computer is like asking it to print. Uh, but what <laughs> would quite a good shock, bit, actually. What would shock a computer, I think, is you can shock a computer in the same way that you can shock um, economists. Because economists are continually baffled that human beings aren't completely uh, au fait with the uh, cost-benefit analysis of every decision and aren't completely rational about taking the most self-beneficial thing in everyone every economic model as far as i'm aware is completely broken because it assumes rationality from humans which i think most humans should know even based on self-reflection but that isn't how we work is it there there are actually uh, economic theories gaining um prevalence now about um value and what what we attach value to and especially how we interact with it in time. So uh, that is changing. But yes, to shock a computer, you'd have to have different values to shock a computer, right? Like, uh, different values to the computer? No, you'd have to have the same values as a computer, which is the different values that you'd have ah, as a human being. Right, okay. So I think that my computer would have been shocked at my early 90s behaviour of using LimeWire without a decent antivirus. <laughs> that is... Oh, God, you're getting all dirty. Stop putting this stuff yeah. in me. Oh, God, I'm covered in shit. Yeah. I imagine that would be like wiping your cock on a public toilet handrail. It's not a public toilet. It's wiping your best friend's toilet. Wiping your best friend... Wiping your cock in your best friend's toilet. Uh, that is, yeah, because it's like, dude, I live here. Who's the toilet in this metaphor? <laughs> You're a toilet. Quite recently, I went to a service station toilet. You know, they have this bit there. This toilet is checked every hour or so. Uh, well, they obviously knew about the shit covering all over the door handle, <laughs> but they, they, haven't, they didn't mean they decided to do anything about it. It's basically druggies. That's basically what they're checking for, isn't it? Making sure no one's doing coke off the uh, rim of a toilet. You don't do coke off the rim of a toilet. I just realised that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's ever done coke off the rim of a toilet. If you drop it on the way across to the system, maybe. <laughs> sort of as desperate to do coke off the rim of a toilet are the sort of person that can't afford coke. <laughs> yeah, so they're doing someone else's coke off the rim of a toilet. Who can afford coke at WH Smith service station prices? Oh, there's more of that patented John Downs observational comedy. Anyway, Dan, have you got Mate any more? Uh, have you got any more uh, lines about hag time? <laughs> Uh, uh, have I got anything prepared? Uh, no, not really. Uh, my computer would have been uh, offended, uh, at least shocked or offended at the uh, language I was using at it yesterday because, oh my fucking God, I have to do online training for my work. Oh, no. Oh, and there's like nine online training. I don't know what you call them. Slideshows, click-throughs. Mm-hmm. 
thingies. Mm-hmm. I think they'd say I think they'd say courses, but they'd be wrong, wouldn't they, Dan? Yes, they would be fucking wrong. Uh, do we all know what we're talking about? So instead of paying somebody to train people in real time and actually interact with them and make sure everybody knows everything, they think it's far more effective to sit them in front of a fucking slideshow um, and ask them inane questions at the end. I'm too old to have had to do uh, the computer driving theory test where I learned to drive a car. But a couple of years ago, I uh, took my motorbike test, which is a horrendous, uh, complicated process. But I had to take a motorcycle theory test. How that's particularly different to a car theory test <laughs> is anyone's guess. But um, I failed the first time because it's like essentially a computer game. And you have to watch a video and you have to click every time you see something dangerous. Oh, cool. But there are two, thi- two things you have to work, uh, watch out for. Basically, you're trying not to shock the computer by telling them there's too many uh, things that are dangerous. <laughs> there were lots of things on, the- on there that could well be bloody dangerous. Let's be honest. Anything could have happened. But they weren't the ones that, were, they weren't the, ones that uh, the, the computer had been programmed to, to look for. So were you like, oh, there could be a monkey in that tree. They're like, the, that, oh, that, that could... That, well, that tree could jump out in front of you. That. I like that you might be... You see a lamppost and you're sort of... You're looking at the zoom and enhance on the pixels to look to see if there's a problem with the wiring that might cause an electrical fault. Considering the first time I passed uh, failed, my car driving test was because the examiner thought I'd farted. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there were, there were a lot of hats to look out for. Have no, you I had farted? No, I thought he farted. <laughs> it was a stinker as well, but it turned out that the uh, driving instructor had been for a drive in the country the day before, got sort of like country smells all over the engine. And it's as it warmed up, the car sort of filled with the the stench of um, Alverchurch or wherever it was been driving. So you failed under the under the uh, he who smelt it Delta rule. <laughs> but I was just, I really, before we get on too much toilet humour, I was going to say that Hacksaw is my favourite computer in the entire increasingly uh, badly named trilogy. Hacksaw's ah. got a sense of humour, right? A dark sense of yeah. humour. Yeah, not a content one, with yeah. enveloping a, a planet in darkness to prevent people looking up and being able to manipulate it. Um, not content with um, wanting to destroy the universe because that's not really his fault, Hactar, because he was programmed to do it. So he's got to complete his program. The best thing about Hactar is the method he chose uh, to destroy the yes. universe, which is incredibly long-winded and complicated and absolutely worthy of the sort of uh, villain in a Bond film that uh, ties James Bond to a table and then leaves rather than just shooting the damn. <laughs> it's interesting that um, Haktar basically had the same problem that Deep Thought had in that he was given too vague an instruction and that is the way not to just to shock but to confuse a computer and now to a personal favourite of mine the Hagunenans of Visitus 3 have the most impatient chromosomes in the galaxy, whereas most races are content to evolve slowly and carefully over thousands of generations, discarding a prehensile toe here, nervously hazarding another nostril there. The Hagunenons would do for Charles Darwin what a squadron of Arcturan stunt apples would have done for Sir Isaac Newton. Their uh, genetic structure, based on the quadruple uh, striated octohelix, is so chronically unstable that, far from passing their basic shape onto their children, they will frequently evolve several times over lunch. But they do this with such reckless abandon that if, sitting at a table, they were unable to reach a coffee spoon, they are likely 
without a moment's consideration to mutate into something with far longer arms, but which is probably incapable of drinking the coffee. They were created by John Lloyd and subsequently wiped out of existence by Adams in the book and TV adaptation and a little bit hastily in the radio series. Uh, John, given the uh, choice of two possible plots, do you stick with what's now canon and go with Disaster Area shooting a black spaceship into the sun? Or do you have our heroes steal an admiral's battleship? So I don't know if you, um, in one of the many uh, Adam's biographies I've read, that contains a theory that in later years, Douglas um, started to say that all various incarnations of the Hitchhiker's Guide were canon. Mm. They just existed in parallel universes. That's convenient. That were quite, and it is, and this is possibly he started saying that after he'd read about parallel universe theory. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm I'm in favour of being in the disaster area universe uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, disaster area is great satire of pop music, uh, and the, the, yeah, I, it's because it's possible to talk about the band's effects rather than their actual. You don't have to hear their actual music. <laughs> Uh, main, well, good, good in, which is good because apparently it's rubbish. But the uh, the the idea of it is really good, and I like that there's culture in there. But the other thing is, I think the Hagenendons are um, problematic uh, in in the same way. Oh, well, they're they're one of these things. Once you like, and I, I've said this before that once uh, anybody brings time travel into a, a universe, that's problematic. You've got to find good ways to handle that, and essentially. Uh, in the later books, it time travel becomes almost like a major character, really, because you you can't ignore mm. it once it's possible. You can't ignore it, so I think it's very mm. difficult to ignore the idea that evolution can happen at such a pace. That there are characters that could do this, um, and don't you think um, we've talked about Red Dwarf before a few times? And don't you think that one of the points in which Red Dwarf starts getting rubbish is where they keep meeting aliens that can change shape into different things, uh, polymorphs, exo-hawks, emotion hawks, or whatever they are. Whenever they stop- yeah, I think once you've done that once, you have to move on to another story, don't but those you? Th- but once you've placed that those things exist in the audience, in, in the universe, mm. anything that you bump into could be, like, you know, a Deus Ex Maxina thing. It could just be ripped away because the creature you're talking to, who is a barrier to you, evolves into something else which is no longer a problem mm. so um <laughs> yeah i don't know i like i like them but they're a mm-hmm. they're a one-off gag and i think the the coherence of the narrative is better without better off without interesting i think I, I i actually do think a lot of this just comes down to how i uh discovered uh the the the, the whole universe uh, and because it was in its radio form that's how i discovered it uh, and it was you know episode six <clears throat> that was mostly i think written by john lloyd um that, that had the hang you nanons and uh, or uh, episode five actually i think anyway um yeah so I, I i think that probably plays a lot into it and then when i started watching the tv series which i didn't much like uh and i hadn't yet read the books the the sudden change of disaster area actually made a lot of sense and it kind of made me wonder whether see this was my this was my headcanon um for a while that actually the tv series might have come before the book because uh or he he knew he wanted to write this for tv but there was no way in the early 80s that he could have 
that anyone could have depicted the Hagunenons in any way that wouldn't have been absolutely and utterly laughable. And so it became my theory that he came up with the disaster area idea as a way of being able to, uh, you know, televise the story and, and then it made it into the books. And I'm almost certain that's not true, but that was what I told myself when I first saw that episode. Yeah, I mean, you might not be completely wrong because it would be once a, a, an author has been told that their radio series can be a book, it does not be on the realms of possibility that you might start thinking that, oh, blimey, this could also be a film or this could also be a TV yeah. series. And he was always ambitious. I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think, I don't, I don't think the Hagen and is bad necessarily. I just think, mm-hmm. um, and it's, I like a lot of things in it, because when it gets problematic, it's very, it's very easy that, that the rest of the plot just ignores it and we all go with it. Mm. Uh, you can toss it away in one line. Oh, that's wrong because of, uh, and you know what I mean? So like, you don't have to, you don't necessarily have to worry about it. Yeah. It's a bit like um, the improbability drive. You can, you can just say whatever, whatever has happened. It's because of the, the of the drive. And then later on, we can say, actually, it's because of the guide mark too. And thus we turn to the bard. Thy knotted and combined locks to part and each particular hair to stand on end. Like quills upon the fearful porpentine. Adams uses this reference when writing about the story Arthur wants to tell Fenchurch upon their first actual meeting, where they're able to talk while he drives her to Taunton. It basically means something that will make your eyes jump out of their sockets and your hair stand on end like porcupine quills. Danny, have you ever used Shakespeare to woo a girl? And can it work in things that aren't Richard Curtis rom-coms? Um... Maybe. Two-part question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so, um, a little context. I'm a scary-looking person sometimes, Uh, especially growing up. I've been a punk, a goth. I've been all sorts. I'd like the the general thread is um, of of what I look like is uh, scruffy, quite big, and cross, Um, (laughs) which changes when you get to know me, granted. Um, But I am very aware of how I look. And in the times where I would woo a lady or uh, in less than lying times, chat up a bird, um, <laughs> uh, I would, yes, I would drop in some literary references, um, uh, especially Shakespeare, um, mm-hmm. because that is a shortcut to say, I'm not as scary as I look. I've read a book. <laughs> <laughs> um and that is actually good. It puts people at ease. They're like, oh, he's a deep and thoughtful type. He's not just planning how to bury me. Shall I disarm thee like a summer's rose? <laughs> and also, I, I kind soft, of... what wind through yonder arse cheek breaks. <laughs> I kind of like the tension of looking quite scary and being able to quote Shakespeare at will. Um, can't, no, no, uh... you don't quote it at will. He wrote it, mate. He quote it at... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but contradictory is good because uh, let's face it it's a shortcut for depth like <laughs> contradict yourself in, in a convincing manner people mistake it for like hidden depths and I am as shallow as a puddle so I need that help uh, and now to something um, a lot less civilised Handled City is a dangerous part of the universe. Ford ends up at the old Pink Dog Bar, where there's a bird that screeches out the names and numbers of local contract killers as a free service to patrons. John, there's something wonderful and bleak about this place, and it seems like it'd make a good home for Rick Deckard. 
do you think we could have seen more of it? Yes, probably. Um, I like a good dive bar, mate. Uh, yeah. I'm not, I was, I was assuming that by throwing this question my way, you were trying to make me admit that I've not seen Blade Runner. Uh, no, I mean, I wasn't trying to trap you. No, 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 no. you haven't seen Blade Runner, John. Uh, actually, I have seen Blade Runner. I found it incredibly boring. I didn't really know what was going on. But I have read the book. <laughs> John being on brand. John being on brand. This jingles a little bit like stage capitalism, but John being on brand. <laughs> I have, I have, I have, read, I have watched the film and I have read the book. But um, considering I can't remember anything that happens in the film or the book, I can only assume that I'm in some sort of sci-fi uh, situation <laughs> where my mind is wiped of uh, science fiction products that everybody else seems to care very deeply about. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I wonder if um, the places in Hitchhikers are thrown away somewhat in favour of the characters and the, the sort of forward thrust of the narrative. Ford has to be somewhere. Why wouldn't he be in a dive bar? It could really be anywhere. It's a, I, it, the the dive bar in Hitchhiker is not going to come alive until another one of the characters comes to join him. So Ford has something to react against. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the uh, I, I like the parrot a lot. Is this the one with the um, disembodied arm, or is there another? Yes. Uh, no, that's the place. I can't remember what disembodied arm does. Uh, he basically, I think he tries to throttle, or he actually does throttle uh, Ford when Ford tries to pay with an uh, American Express card. Absolutely, I've been in bars in uh, in Birmingham where that, where that would happen. Uh, <laughs> Can I just say, old pink dog bar? What a fantastic name for a dive bar! Like I, I suck at naming things. Like I'm, I am very bad at naming stuff, and so I would have taken the rest of the day off at old pink dog bar. <laughs> All right, now let's uh, go a little more upmarket. Han Wavel is a world which consists largely of fabulous ultra-luxury hotels and casinos, all of which have been formed by the natural erosion of wind and rain. The chances of this happening are more or less one to infinity against. Little is known of how this came about because none of the geophysicist, probability, statisticians, meteorologists or bizarrologists who are so keen to research it can afford to stay there. Mr Smith... Have you ever found yourself in a place that's maybe a little more upscale than your South Birmingham roots can cope with? No, I feel comfortable wherever I am. <laughs> <laughs> you fit snugly into any in, any fitting, any setting. Uh, okay, so uh, picture the scene. I am 19, maybe 20 years old. I've been working in the same pub for two years. Um, I know all the people there. I'm part of that social circle. Um Everybody has hooked up and gone into couples, apart from me and this other girl. Now, this other girl is so amazing. She's really, she's, she's really nice. I just don't particularly like her in that way. But because we're the last of that circle, um, she's desperate to hook up with me because it just kind of, it's kind of neat, kind of sews everything up. You know the last the last two people, like Joe and Phoebe at the uh, end of Friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 kind of uh, like everybody wants. I did not expect that reference from John Bounds. I love Friends, but let's talk about that another time. We'll get uh, Danny back on the Northfield game. So <laughs> yes, I'm 
Um, there was a party at our house one night. I am working that night. No one else is. Uh, I close the bar. Uh, close the bar. I end up at that house. I know that I'm in catch up, and that is the worst time to meet me because I will consume anything put in front of me. Um, and I end up blitzed out of my head. I fell asleep under a table. In the middle of the night, this young lady creeps in and seduces me uh, under the, her kitchen table, <laughs> which was awkward at best because it limits your options when you're under a table. And I go with it because, you know, why not? Sure. When in Rome. When I wake up in the morning, everybody is sitting around um, having breakfast. Breakfast has been cooked by this uh, by this point, and I'm waking up particularly late. Are you still under the table at this point? I wake up <laughs> under the table. I do the comedy <laughs> thing of sitting up uh, straight, hitting my head, and then uh, realizing that I'm under a table. Um, and I'm speaking to people. And I haven't seen this uh, particular lady yet. Um, and I'm speaking to people. And they're all like, oh, congratulations. Um Oh, that's brilliant. Um, she'd woke up some hours before me and told everyone that we were now a boyfriend and girlfriend. Oh, good grief. And this may not seem like it's part of the story, but it is part of the story. Then there needs to be hella context here. Um, and I wasn't okay with that. Yeah. Um, so I'm hungover as a motherfucker and I, uh, I just get out of there. Like, just get out of there. Um, I'm scheduled to work that night with this particular person. So I'm on the horns of a dilemma. I can tell her straight away about the misunderstanding, or I can work a whole shift pretending that I'm okay with it, and then suddenly go, oh, by the way, and then run off. Uh, that's, that's That's a niche reference, but that's a noise that people... Uh, that that Danny went to school with used to make that was sort of like nah ain't happening yeah uh, uh, yeah I kind of yeah it's bad of me to presume that everybody knows what realms means yeah so that night I tell her before the shift sit her down and go look I don't know what you thought last night was it was great I I, I had fun but like I, I like we haven't talked about being in a relationship I'm not sure I want to be in a relationship I'm young and uh, I'd all the usual excuses for a, 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 a 90 year old man boy to go, oh, I'm not ready for this. Um, and so that was that. Um, and it was, it was terribly awkward for a while. And so fast forward about five months, she's got a new job at an insurance company and um, she is going to her Christmas do. Now her Christmas do is a very, very fancy thing. It's at the NEC They've hired out um, like one of the ballrooms and they've turned it into a casino. You have to you have to wear a tux. You have to. Um, it's a very fancy insurance company businessman thing to do. She says that on the night of that happening, when we were talking afterwards, I agreed to go to this thing with her, and she'd already bought the ticket, which was a hundred and five pounds for me. And I was like, oh, okay, uh, no. And she was like, but I've already bought the ticket and I've already booked the hotel. Presumptuous much? And she was like, don't worry, it's separate beds. So um, she's hired me a tux, she's booked me a hotel. I'm kind of obliged to say yes, right? But I'm not happy about this. There's something deep in my subconscious that's like, no, this is really fucking sketchy. So fast forward to the day of the thing. I said that I'll do it. Um, we go to this thing and it is 
super fancy. It, she, she's picked up my tux. Um, we, we, we go upstairs to the room. Oh, by the way, it's not two separate beds. It's a double bed. And, oh. and I'm like, oh, I'm here now. Um, I changed this tux. The tux is far too tight, by the way. Um, I don't know if she was uh, having her dream boyfriend's um, measurements, but it wasn't my measurements. Um, and I go downstairs and meet uh, all the friends of an insu- uh, of a girl that is manipulating me um, in an insurance company. So they're all really interesting people. No rods up any uh, any backs in a casino, fancy casino uh, dance setting that I am in no way prepared for. <laughs> I, uh, what would what would John? What would you do in this situation, mate? I would. I I always go one or two ways. I either go if I'm in a uncomfortably posh situation. I either go absolutely super posh, <laughs> uh, which often uh, ends up with me being so softly spoken that no one can hear me. Uh, or I will go, I will go the other end and be ultra working class and start. I remember going to one, uh, works do with a, a, a partner and, uh, continually trying to tell the joke about, um, the fact that Scunthorpe was the only football team with Scun in its, uh, <laughs> no. and talking about keeping coal in the bath, that sort of thing. I, I was hoping you'd back me up by saying I would get absolutely obliteratedly drunk. Oh, both of those, both of those <laughs> scenarios, that's what would happen. Um, I get absolutely obliteratedly drunk. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, it, the night does not go well for anyone involved. Um, and then I'm taken back to the bedroom and reminded how much you paid for the bedroom and how much you paid for the laundry that she just put on and made to feel quite uncomfortable for about 20 minutes and a half uh, <laughs> before we retired to sleep. <laughs> And that is the one time that I have felt socially the most awkward um, by trying to upscale. Yeah, that 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 is my one story. The poshest place I've ever been. I've been to the Dorchester. I uh, was researching an article. I was writing about the 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 cup of the tea, the cup of tea. It was at, yeah. The actual setup was um, uh, that uh, whether George Orwell's tea making. Um, recipe was better than one that Douglas Adams wrote. So very pertinent to this podcast. But uh, I went to um, the Dorchester for afternoon tea, champagne afternoon tea, you know. You can book. Um, and you go on the balcony uh, at the Dorchester internally for, for afternoon tea. And it is the weirdest thing in the world is that the um, – I'm guessing that very few people who can afford to stay at the Dorchester would go there for afternoon tea, if you see what I mean. So I think they've got this whole sort of section and this whole almost section of service staff or whatever and everything, which is a little bit like a theme park version of the hotel. It's a, de- it's a demo version. It's the, <laughs> it's the shareware version of the Dorchester. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, you know, so the uh, – the, the the waiter was like absolutely every bit um he's part in the empire sort of uh charade you know prim neat knowledgeable about tea and uh a foreign national who had to kowtow to all the uh traditional um traditions of englishness due to uh the economic uh hegemony but um it was bloody awkward and they they knew that you didn't know what was meant, what you were meant to be doing, and we knew 
that we were not meant to be doing, but there's this unspoken lack of acknowledgement of the fact that we don't know whether or not you're meant to, what you're meant to do with the milk. Can you actually have a drink of the champagne and a drink of the tea at the same time? I mean, not in the mouth, but would you, should you drain a, a glass of champagne before you move on to the tea? Uh, can you mix cucumber sandwiches with um, little uh, cakey things? I don't know. And it was um, incredibly weird. It sounds rather stressful, yeah. if I'm honest. Well, not only the fact that, but you are, obviously, because you've tried to go on a little bookmark, you are uh, stuffed into a, a suit that's probably a little bit tight. Uh, or shoes that are a little bit tight or something. Um, the tables, because they're trying to make money, are quite small and quite an enclosed space. Yeah, I don't recommend <laughs> it, essentially. Uh, and now let's um, let's just stand around awkwardly for a bit and wait for the ding. Modern elevators are strange and complex entities. The ancient electric winch and maximum capacity eight-persons jobs bear as much relation to a serious cybernetics corporation happy vertical people transporter as a packet of mixed nuts does to the entire west wing of the Syrian State Mental Hospital. This is because they're able to travel to the floor you want even before you realised you wanted it. They ended up sulking in basements because their passengers wouldn't take them anywhere interesting. John, if one of these broke down... Would they make good company while you waited for the engineer to come and get you going again, as it were? Are, are we inside it or outside? Because I have a problem stepping inside anything that is sentient. <laughs> it's a good policy to have. It, it's um, it's just, yeah, it's just a bit weird, isn't it? I think the um, they were probably uh, very, very good, very good company. I mean, I don't know if you've ever like hitchhiked or... Had other reasons to be inside a car with people that you don't really like over a long period of, you know, tracks. <laughs> I've had family, uh, family, family holidays. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I, I'm aware of the situation. the The problem with people is not that you can't struggle to talk to them. The problem is actually that you are expected by all social conventions to talk to them. <laughs> this is why uh, the British have evolved. Uh, their behaviour on uh, this is why we're a very uh, a reading nation, a fairly literate nation, because uh, you would much rather read the asinine uh, poetry on the tube that is over the top of people on the other side of a train than in any way catch uh, the eye or talk to anybody who's also in the carriage. Um, and yeah, it's uh, so you know, you know, when people always say, Oh no, everybody's on their phone on the on the train, you know, yeah, when you look at old photographs, everybody's reading a newspaper and absolutely not looking up from the stories of whatever Mr. Chamberlain was talking about to Mr. Hitler. Uh, because and, and by the way, the captions of those old timey photographs is uh, since newspapers, no one's talking to each other, yeah. So since the invention of the paperback book, no one doth talk to each other. Uh, it's um, because since talking to people is hard. Yeah, it's boring, and they say irritating things, and, and you don't really care about the conversation. No one's going to really invest in a conversation. They're like it's always, it's always as you say, asinine stuff. Like no one's going to go. Ah. Well, it's taking a long time, yeah. You know, that reminds me of a thing that happened three years ago. Have you ever thought that, like, consciousness doesn't actually exist, that, that we're all just going through the motions? Like, we're never actually going to drill down and say anything that engages anyone else. No, we're not going to enter into our own version of waiting for Godot. 
it, I work with them. Um, I work with children with autism, and uh, one of the best things that they do is they don't care about social conventions. So if you're standing there waiting with them and you try and start small talk, like there are some that will go, I don't really feel like talking right now. Yeah, <laughs> and you'll go in your head. You'll go rude, and then you go, Oh no! Oh, no, actually, oh, that's a relief. That's good. I'm a big fan of. Um... Of two things, of a of a Brazilian barbecue. There's absolutely no hair on it, right? <laughs> uh, this is certainly not one for either of the Johns in this contingent. Um, but uh, a Brazilian barbecue is basically lots of meat on sticks, and and you have a red, uh, you have a card which um, is. I was about to say, is it a sex move? But you've said nothing that contradicts that. No, so no, far. so far, no. Uh, you have a card. <laughs> one side is green. One side is red. Uh, the green side is for yes. The red side is for no. Still. Uh, Still haven't diverged, um, and essentially, uh, <laughs> I, there is there is an autism approach which basically has the same thing. So, uh, in a Brazilian barbecue, when you're done with meat or you've got enough meat on your plate or you're, you've got the meat sweats, you flip the card over so it's red, and the 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 waiters don't come over and shave off a piece of lamb for you. That is fucking brilliant. That exists. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's not a Douglas Adams thing. That that exists in the world now. That I can have a card and have men. Bring me meat. Brighton's probably got three. I mean, it's probably tofu, but they've they've they're, they'll have them. And uh, the same thing does exist for uh, people on the uh, spectrum, as it were. That I, I have seen this said that some people have bracelets or, or you know those little sort of paper paper bracelet type things, and you can flip it round to have a red side or a green side, and, and it basically means it's okay to talk to me, or I'd rather you didn't. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I like to take the Brazilian barbecue approach to conversation. That's brilliant. My mum used to worry that uh, I was on the spectrum. But um, once I'd finished Jet Set Willy, I stopped. And with that, uh, we're going to say goodbye. Um, thank you very much for listening. You can uh, find all the show notes and stuff at btlpodcast.com. You can find Danny on Twitter at Probably Drunk. You can find John at Bounder. And I am at I am Stedman. We'll be back next week, of course, because that is what we do. But until then, share and enjoy. Little is known of how this came about because none of the geog uh, shit because none of the geophysicists probability statistics <laughs> probability statistics oh shit sink <laughs> can we get the robot in <laughs> just to say just to say statisticians oh okay good luck everyone we are anonymous you are hacked.